Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 122. Have you attempted to set up a Python development environment on Windows before? Would it be helpful to have an easy-to-follow guide to get you started? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We talk about a Real Python tutorial for configuring a Windows coding environment. The guide contains valuable suggestions, best practices, and powerful coding tools. It also covers how to use a package manager, a new Windows terminal, PowerShell core, and a program to manage multiple versions of Python. Christopher covers another real Python article about using TOML in Python. TOML is popular as a configuration format for building and distributing your own packages. We discuss how TOML parsing will be added to Python standard library in version 3.11. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including technical writing for developers, a news roundup saying goodbye to obsolete Python libraries, uncommon uses of Python in commonly used libraries, a prettier LS, and a project for advanced hot reloading Python. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher. Welcome back. Hey there. All right, so we're going to start out with some news this week. <laughs> I kind of left it all in your lap to do this week, so... Um... Yeah, that's all right. It's <laughs> summertime. What else do I have to do? Yeah, sure. A uh, couple of quick hits. Start out with uh, Python 3.10.6 is out, so that's a bug fix release. The biggest part of it is there were a couple of security fixes in it, one affecting the built-in HTTP server. There was an exploit, and the other was some memory being used after it was freed in the underlying engine. So that's why you write Python instead of C, so that you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, so core yeah. developers worry about it, you don't. Yeah. And then uh, following a couple of days just after that, 3.11 Release Candidate 1 came out. I've also got some good news on that. A few podcasts back, we were talking about the fact that there might be a delay. Yeah. It looks like they're targeting October 3rd, so they must have got over whatever it is they were worried about and solved the problems. Nice. So it looks like they're on time. Which is nice. Are they? They're not considering this a cursed release because that was like the, the ongoing never know. thing. Don't, I think you're not supposed to say it out loud, right? Oh. I think I think you may have just uh, cursed it right there. So uh, we'll see what happens. All right. And then the second bit was Django four one went gold. So it's continuing on with some changes in the four line, adding a bunch of asynchronous capabilities. So this time they've added async to the ORM. So for the high-performance crowd, that should make a bit of a difference. Right. And then the part that I'm looking forward to is they've changed how form rendering is done. It used to be done with some string concatenation, and now it's built on the template engine. And this is a weird little devil in the details thing, but when you get into crafting your forms, you can now use the engine the way other parts of your templates were used. So there's some potential there that uh, may make, particularly dealing with things like Bootstrap and some of that easier. Cool. That sounds good. 
it's good to see the async stuff kind of improving also. Yeah, it's it's a slow, steady kind of chipping away at the problem. Yeah. The last one I had here, unfortunately, we keep talking about this, so I just keep bringing it up and just let people know it's out there. But there has been another set of malicious packages discovered on PyPI, 10 of them this time. A couple of them are actually looking in your local storage for tokens, passwords, and cookies. Ugh. So this isn't just the AWS key things that we've talked about in the past. And they're starting to get more sophisticated. A couple of them that are pretending to be other packages have copied the entire homepage and like the graphics and everything so that if you're looking at it quickly, it looks like exactly what you're expecting which makes it a little harder to tell the difference. So a little trickier. Yeah. And I guess just sort of a shout out to the folks at Checkpoint who keep scanning this stuff and getting it taken down because, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunately, it's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole, but somebody at least is wielding the hammer. So good to know that we uh, have some people there paying attention, but also that that's a little spooky that they're spending so much effort to actually remodel the web pages and make it be more attractive. I have a little tiny thing on that front. This is an article that kind of related. It's from TechCrunch, and the story's by Ax Sharma. The title of it is Protestware on the Rise, Why Developers Are Sabotaging Their Own Code. So I'm just going to leave it as a news thing, but it kind of hits on one particular person that we didn't focus on last time uh, when we were talking about the two-factor thing that was being added to PyPI for the top 1% while his project fell on the top 1%. And... He had his own sort of version of protesting it. In this case, he really didn't want to have to do the extra stuff. Was mad, you know, like, I do this free open source thing. Why do I have to add this extra stuff just for corporations and blah, blah, blah. What the story is really interesting gets into is that it then begins into a different form of protest. (laughs) Yes, there's other people protesting big corporations using their stuff and open source, but there's actually a whole bunch of devs that are using their software to sort of protest Russia. And that's very interesting. And so it's very like localized kind of stuff that's happening with it, with either messages to the Russian people about Ukraine or some other kinds of things that are doing their own active protest in that way. So interesting article about that. And weird, you know, with open source, how things can be used (laughs) in different ways. So something to kind of keep an, an eye on. I thought it kind of fit in that theme this morning. Right. Cool. That takes us right into topics. So what's your first one? So I'm starting this week with a real Python article by Gerarn Hiel, longtime contributor and somebody I might be working with shortly as Python 3.11 sneaks up on us if uh, the pattern continues. This article is actually a bit of a preview topic for 3.11. It's called Python and Toml, New Best Friends. So I don't know if you've ever looked around and said what the world needs is another configuration language, uh, but (laughs) Tom Preston Werner did, and the world got TOML. So TOML is short for Tom's Obvious Minimal Language and is a simple-to-parse configuration language supported by a wide range of programming languages, C, C Sharp, C++, Java, JavaScript, Swift, Python, of course, and a whole bunch more. So lots of choice out there. Now, you may have been seeing some fuss about it lately, and that's because it's about to become a first-order feature in Python 3.11. Now, it's already used a fair amount in the Python community. It's very common, particularly with package configuration purposes. So if you've ever seen a pyproject.toml file, that's in, you know, toml format. Kind of makes sense, right? So for those who've used a INI file in Windows, this format is fairly similar. It has sections and name value pairs. 
The sections are denoted by square brackets. So if I was going to define a section for user info, I might have like an account section in a file. So that would be the word account surrounded by square brackets. And then underneath that, you get name value pairs that are variable definitions. So I might have username equals Bob and password equals you shouldn't store passwords in a config file exclamation mark, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Every name value pair is inside of a section. And uh, essentially, the section is continues until you see another section definition. Toml is type aware. So those examples that I gave would be strings and would be surrounded in quotes. All the keys in the name value pairs have to be words. It can get tricky. You can do things with numbers, but it still treats them like words. So you're better off just sticking with the way you define variables in Python, and that's easier. Otherwise, it just gets confusing. It doesn't have any schema mechanism. There are some proposals out there for doing validation. But right now, unless you use a third-party library, you essentially have to uh, validate them yourself. So the one of the third-party libraries out there that is common for doing this kind of schema stuff is called Taplo. So you can check that out if you're looking for that stuff. I mentioned that Toml is type-aware. The types are pretty much what you'd expect, plus a couple extras. So strings, integers, floats, booleans, uh, several different variations on dates and times and time zone aware or naive, that kind of thing. And then arrays and what they call tables. I'll come back to the tables in a second. That one's a little interesting. That's connected to the sections. But let me start with strings, very similar to Python, uh, supports Unicode, a typical escape sequence mechanism, triple quotes for multi-line. You're supposed to use the double quote indicator for quotes rather than the single quote. So depending on, you know, if, you, if you're used to Python programming in black, that's nothing. If you're <laughs> me who still insists on using the single because I like it. Don't have to press shift. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. Why, why would I need to hit that extra key on the keyboard? It's all the HTML is why. It's because I write so much HTML. It's all double quotes in HTML. So I tend to default to the single so that I can wrap them in doubles. But that's a tangent. So anyways, <laughs> like Python, the integers support the underscore format. This is one of those features I always forget is there until I see it, which is you can use an underscores a thousand separator to make larger numbers easier to read. And it supports that as well. Okay, so I mentioned tables. Let's talk about that for a minute. So this is another way of defining sections uh, using the square brackets. You can also do it other ways as well. So there's two other ways of creating groups of data. You can use dot notation when you're defining the key. So you can say person dot first name and person dot last name, for example, and that'll create a section called person automatically. And that's no different than sort of doing the square brackets, which means it makes it easy to nest your groupings because you can have a square bracket section and then have a dot noted section inside of that so that you can sort of have groups of groups of things. Toml ignores indentation, sort of the opposite of Python. And the reasoning behind this is that it actually makes it easier for you to uh, use indentation to provide hints to somebody who's reading the file. So if I've got, say, a section and then I've got a, a subsection inside of it, another square brackets, I can indent that whole other subsection and to make it clear that it is a subsection, but I don't have to actually yeah, see the relationship and everything. Yeah, yeah basically okay. it does it. And I can do that square thing by uh, square bracket subsection by doing dot notation inside of the square brackets. So let's say we had user in square brackets, then I can have user dot player one inside of square brackets as a nested section inside of it. So it's tables all the way down instead of turtles. 
And then the third way of creating tables is there's this dict-like structure using brace brackets. Um, this is a little different from Python as they use equals value, name equals value, rather than colon. But the concept's the same. It's very restrictive, though. It has to fit on a single line. So you're pretty much encouraged to just use sections the other way that I described it instead. So if you've got like a quick one-liner to group things together, you can do it. But otherwise, just do the square brackets or the dot notation. Great. So you've got a TOML file. Now what? Well, Python 3.11, you just use the built-in library to read it. Or there are other libraries that you can pip install if you aren't on 3.11 yet. Uh, when you load a TOML file, it's kind of like you know json.loads, and uh, what you get back is a dictionary representing the file. Sections are treated as nested dicts, and everything else just becomes key value pairs inside of the dictionary. So you just you can end up you know with your nested sections, you just end up with dictionary keys pointing to dictionaries, pointing to dictionaries as as much as you want to go, kind of thing. The article goes on to talk about how to write TOML files, gives some advice on when to use them, when not to, some style recommendations, and my personal favorite feature, which is kind of, it's a little esoteric, but if you've run into this problem before, it's like, oh, neat. So you can update a document losslessly. So what that means is if you've got an existing file and you want to change a key value in it, it won't mess with your formatting. So if you normally if you deserialize if you serialize something then deserialize it and then serialize it again you lose like the comments because they're not kept in the serialization you like you take a dictionary and you put it back well you can it's it's aware of the existing file so if you've got some of that indentation that you want it'll keep it which I thought was kind of a neat little feature cool so this format is becoming more common in the Python world, which means the article is kind of a must-read thing. You're going to run into this at some point. Probably going to do something with Tommel in the future, so probably a good read to uh, get, make yourself familiar with it. So I know about the, the project um, usage of it. The other potential usages are like data and things like that, or... Where, where do we see us using it? Yeah, well, so you've, and the article talks about this a little bit. There's, there's this fine line between what is configuration like data and what is just sort of data data. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, a lot of the kinds of things you would use to store, uh, use JSON to store, you can use Toml or, you know, or, or YAML, one of those kind of replacements. Uh, but its intent isn't really like it's not meant as a database right like you're, it's not meant as a lightweight database and and just like people abuse json people abuse toml and uh, but the original intent of it was more of the sort of configuration side of things so a nice standardized way to do that if we can all agree on it and and it also has these nice formatting things that's the intent yeah and, and in fact it's one of the things Garan actually talks about so although it's heavily influenced by the ini format or any format i'm not sure which way you're supposed to say that Evidently, the uh, any format was never standardized, so there's variations on it out there. So although it, it worked in Windows and it's kind of disappeared since Windows introduced the registry, you don't see it as much anymore, but it used to be really, really common. But everybody kind of had their own little variations on, you know, how did the strings work or how did the numbers work or whatever. So this is sort of a formalization of that so that you, yeah, that, which which means, you know, everybody can parse the files between languages and not have to worry about variation. Well, that's good. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely, like you said, it's it's coming. <laughs> it's a Python 3.11 thing, you know, so you need to kind of pay attention. So that that's something I'm going to mention in, in the article that I'm going to talk about. Yeah, well, and it's deep, deeply nested inside of the whole config setup 
project management. So like you're increasingly seeing, you know, uh, it's in black and all those other kinds of things. So like as the, as the whole packaging system evolves in Python, um, I I think you're going to see a lot more of it. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. Like there's so many ways to do everything. And the idea of standards bodies, like saying, yes, let's standardize this stuff and agree on it, I, I think is good. And so I definitely want to reread through the article, learn a little more. So my first one is by Martin Hines. It's a Medium blog. It is called Python and Plain English. The title is Say Goodbye to These Obsolete Python Libraries. And it's kind of like a greatest hits of conversations I've had with you or other people about lots of these sort of suggestions of like, hey, this has been around for a little while now. Maybe you should stop using this old thing um, and and kind of move toward using sort of quote-unquote modern Python, even go beyond the idea of Python 3, like stuff from Python 3.4, that's been around quite a while now. (laughs) Now uh, 3.11 is uh, coming out in a couple months. So Uh, the first one of his suggestions to sort of say goodbye is to say goodbye to using os.path. The OS module has lots of other little things in it, and that was one of the main things that a lot of people were using to sort of set up paths to files. And in Python 3.4, pathlib came out along. And pathlib is just, I don't know anybody who doesn't say that it is a good way to <laughs> move forward in, in accessing paths. So much better. Yeah. It's, it's object-oriented. So um, yeah. It's readable. It's natural to write. You can do all this really kind of cool stuff with like slashes in between, so forth. It, it deals with the whole conversion to Windows and back and forth that was caused all kinds of errors for certain scripts running on them. Um, I ran into that myself back when I was starting, dealing with going back and forth between running scripts on two different platforms. So he talks about it quite a bit and has some nice examples of it. I, I like his use of these sort of code examples. It's kind of a cool, like, hosted by GitHub thing, those little blocks you might have seen in other Medium articles and so forth. And in it, he... He imports both and then kind of shows the differences in the code styles and so forth. But then he also provides these resources, and they're from Trey Hunter, who I haven't had on the show yet, but I I would like to have him on. He is another kind of luminary in the Python space, talks a lot about this sort of stuff. And it's funny because the links are from like 2018, December, (laughs) why you should be using Pathlib. And uh, he had a follow-up because he had so many comments from the first one. No, really, Pathlib is great, (laughs) is the name of the next article. And that one's from January of 2019. So yeah, there's a lot of people out there saying it, and I agree. It's definitely, I can see why he put it at the top. Well, some of this stuff is always just that backward compatibility problem, right? So, yeah. you know, for example, Django moved to using Pathlib when they dropped 2.7 support. Okay. That's 2, right? Yeah. So I think when they went into 3-something, I can't remember exactly where they they started dropping the the 2 support. And now, you know, the, so they got up to a point where their minimum supported version was far enough along that it included Pathlib. And then, oh, okay, so we can get rid of all this OS.path stuff, right? So a lot of these kinds of things, it just, you know, it, for for, maintain, for maintainers of large projects, it, it, I'm not going to use both. I'm, I'm going to use the one that's easiest. Right. So otherwise, you, you've got six everywhere. So, it, you know, it, it's a slow <laughs> progression. The schedule, if you will, of deprecation is always an interesting one, and yep. and I, I would I would guess that would be a, a big part of 
sort of project planning where a lot of people may want to just rip up code and yep. toss it away. But yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. I, I have comments in some of my own libraries that are, okay, when you drop this, change this, okay. right? Like there's this little block that says, <laughs> you know, the, the to-do block that says, okay, make this better reading code when, yeah. when, when you're no longer supporting whatever, take advantage of this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So there's Pathlib. The next one is uh, about using secrets. It's kind of funny. That's one that I have recently seen that I'm guessing in the tutorial world that I feel like I live in, I always see random being used for so many different things. And that's fine for like, oh, making a little game or doing other things. But when you're generating passwords, uh, it's not great. It doesn't produce cryptographically safe tokens. And there is a thing called os.urandom. And that's the one he's saying, maybe you should stop using that because there's this great new thing that came along in Python 3.6 called Secrets. And that module really can kind of help with a lot of that stuff. And I won't go into all the super details, but again, if you're doing something like trying to create you know, passwords or do other kind of randomizing of those things, um, you may want to move beyond just using the random module. The next one is something that you've covered in a lot of detail in one of your courses, which is zone info. In fact, I went to look through the episode list and you also had covered it pretty heavily in the episode 30, which was with you and Gerarna actually, about uh, Python 3.9, the release. Yep. Both of you guys are on and, and we were talking about proper time zone support being added. The big trick, and I don't know if this has changed at all in two years, but it does rely on you having uh, an operating system that has proper time zone support has leveraged a lot of that, but it has helped. In this case, you're moving beyond using PyTZ and using the zone info instead. It's a nice big change and, and helps quite a bit by using the IANA time zone database. Okay, the next one, kind of interesting. Python 3.7 came along with data classes, and his suggestion is you probably can use data classes in most cases instead of named tuples. His reasoning is that they can be mutable. They provide these nice default things, these built-in special methods of repr and equal, eq and init and so forth. And then it also allows you to specify default values. I think they look way prettier, generally data classes over named tuples. But And then there's a handful of other things. And then I had a recent conversation with uh, Bruce Eckel. And we talked about the frozen flag that if you do want to make them immutable and everything becoming a little more functional, no side effects and so forth, this was one of the tools he talked about in episode 116. But yeah, data classes are a definite enhancement. I don't know if they completely replaced what people were using named tuples for. And then he gets into, hey, stop using print and use logging instead. And okay, it does require a little bit of extra setup if you're just doing some really simple stuff and you want to just use print statements along. I, I think that's fine. Uh, logging requires a little bit of additional setup in it. But yes, it provides a lot more useful information, and especially if you're debugging that way. And there actually has been a lot of conversations about debugging lately that I've been in, involved in and some courses coming out. So it definitely kind of fits in there. Uh, he provides some nice resources for learning a little more about using logging and debugging in there. And then that kind of relates to the next one, which is f-strings. And I'm a huge proponent on it. Did a course, uh, Real Python, about f-strings. Introduced in Python 3.6. They're fast. They look clean. I find them superior in almost every single way. The one 
or two things are, uh, you can't use them in logging. Hey. <laughs> so, and the other one. You can. There's just okay, a cost yeah, to it. It's, yeah, kind of a little bit problematic in, in some ways. And then there's also this idea of templates at runtime, which, again, that's a really specific usage. But in most cases, they're faster and cleaner. And I when I initially started talking about them because I was excited about them and I was doing a course on them, I, I ran into some pushback from from like some people I was talking to at like a user group and they were like, why? And I'm like, well, this, 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 and there. So it took a while and and they definitely came back and said, okay, I get it now. <laughs> so I don't run into that kind of pushback anymore. So I, I found like we're on our, what, third, fourth different kind of string formatting mechanism inside of Python. Sure, right. And because I came from the sea world, sea world, <laughs> not just about whales, with, you know, percent %s, percent %f, and all the rest of that, uh, it was an easy thing to sort of adjust to when I got to Python. And then the, you know, dot format, I was like, eh, whatever, it doesn't really get anything. Like, it just doesn't make any difference for me. And it, it didn't feel easier. And and so I sort of went through and I kind of never adopted. And then F strings came out and I was like, oh, no, this is better. Okay. This yeah. is right. So, <laughs> so I skipped the ones in between. It was, I'm always either, you know, what the format that logging still uses, the old C style. Yeah. Or F strings, so nothing in between. Yeah. yeah. And then the last one is actually uh, about Toml. There was a previous library called Tom Lee, T O M L I. There's a new one called Toml Lib that is sort of replacing it. So yeah, it's a nice list. I think Martin did a good job here kind of going through it and, and talking about it, but it, I thought it was just kind of fun as a wrap-up of all these things that I, I've had lots of these other kind of conversations about and definitely things to keep in mind. Maybe things to add to your deprecation list also. <laughs> this week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. You've probably experienced syntax errors or other runtime errors in your programs. But logic errors in your programs cause unexpected behaviors called bugs. Removing these bugs is called debugging. The video course is titled Python Basics, Finding and Fixing Code Bugs. It's based on a chapter of the Python Basics book by David Damis. And in the course, instructor Martin Royce takes you through learning how to debug inside of Python's built-in code tool, Idle the interactive development and learning environment, and how to capitalize on its built-in debug control window. You'll practice debugging on a buggy function, setting breakpoints, and inspecting values, walking through a four-step process for identifying and removing bugs, and learning alternative methods for debugging your code. Debugging is a skill all developers need to work through. Moving beyond print statements in your code and learning how to implement a debugger is a worthy investment in your future. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. Yours is kind of related, but a little different. What's your next one? Yeah, it's sort of in the same vein. This is uh, by Eugene Yan, and it's called Uncommon Uses of Python in Commonly Used Libraries. Uh, and I kind of like the premise here. He's been reading other people's Python libraries in order to learn to be more Pythonic. 
and the article describes some of the habits that he's trying to emulate. Uh, so this is a little deeper than your typical, you know, baby's first Python, this is what a print statement looks like. Yeah, yeah. There's some darker corners here. The The first one he talks about is the use of super in base classes. So if you've done any object-oriented programming in Python, you'll have come across super. It gets used to access the parent class, and the most common place you'll find it is inside of the Dunderer init method to make sure that the class you're inheriting from's setup gets called as well. And the recommendation here, which seems a little weird, is you should do this even in your own base classes. So you might think, well, it's my base class. I know it's the root. Why bother? Well, it turns out that this has an impact on how mix-ins work. Mm, So let's say you've got a class called person that inherits from another class called address and phone. Uh, Sorry, from a class called address and a class called phone. So I've got person based on address and phone in order to get all the data attributes together in the same place. If address doesn't call super in Dunder init, phones Dunder init won't get called. Okay. And this has to do with how what's called method method resolution order works on Python inheritance and how you chain together the mix-ins. So if you forget to do this in your class, even if you think it's a base class, you will be interrupting the chain of inheritance that happens as the other mix-ins get pulled. And as you can imagine, that is a tricky, tricky bug to find because it's like, well, my constructor is not getting called. Why not? <laughs> that is a weird thing. So general recommendation here is you should just call super all the time inside of your base object. And you remember that all objects actually inherit from a base object class. So that super is actually doing something. It's calling the base objects dunder in it. So this is why it works this way. Uh, but it is one of those that's a little bit, like I said, a bit tricky to find if uh, if you're not aware of it. So that's a good recommendation. Can I stop you for one second? Yeah. There's a, this term that's in my head about object-oriented um, programming and kind of the thought process. The idea of you using mixins generally, what is that called? Like when you're, as opposed to like, you know, just inheriting from a base class and kind of adding on it. It's There's like these different terms for it. I, I can't think of it. So you you mean like multiple inheritance? Is that what you're... Well, the idea of multiple inheritance, the idea that you're kind of adding attributes from these other classes as opposed to like... It's different from like parent and child and kind of... Stuff. Yeah, a, a, a mix-in is generally considered... So, so pure... And you're getting into a bit of an academic realization of it, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, a typical inheritance is is sort of the is a kind of mechanism, right? And yeah, versus the has a, whereas the the mix in is often a way of pulling in the has a yeah. is really what it comes down to, right? Yeah. So, an example that I have in one of my libraries is oftentimes inside of Django. I have two fields in almost every one of my objects, which is a create timestamp and an update timestamp. So that if I'm trying to debug when something has happened to an object, I can go in and look at the database and I can see, oh, this was created on this date and it was updated on this date. So I want this everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I have a timestamp mix-in. So if you're creating a person class, you're not really making them a time-based object. So you're not inheriting it from that perspective. You're just mixing in these fields. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a bit of a sort of an academic distinction, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah, but but I see that kind of methodology of adding these additional, you know, has a functionality kind of things. This is where you're going to run into it because you're going to be have multiple inheritance, like you said. 
That's right. And I generally find mix-ins easier to mentally process than sort of the parent-child concept. Because like I said, you're just adding some fields, you're just integrating the concept. Whereas that parent-child concept is more of a, okay, I've got a person and a person is an animal or a square is a rectangle. And oftentimes the mix-ins are either providing just attributes or helper functions. Yeah. And they don't really need to have any understanding of the parent. So uh, they're kind of a separate way of, it's a Lego block kind of uh, mentality. Yeah, I got really into this with plotting libraries and mix-ins were really handy for like, okay, you want to add legends and you want to add this thing and you want to add this kind of functionality. And I was like, oh, this really makes sense to me to inherit, quote unquote, these extra things. And yeah, yeah, cool. Thanks. Sorry for the digression. No, it's noise. Yeah. So uh, the and I'm, I'm mentally going through the people who are going to be screaming about this. Christopher used the phrase constructor. There are no constructors in Python. Then he called it inheritance when it was a. Mi- oh boy. So yeah. So I, I'm using a lot of the language there very very loosely to to talk the point. So sure. uh, you can scream in the comments about it. Later. <laughs> right. Gives you something to do on the internet. Uh, <laughs> so the second chunk in the uh, in the article uh, is again this is back into sort of that class modeling, object-oriented philosophy stuff. And he's got some recommendations that he came up with for himself on when to use instances, uh, class methods, and static methods inside of objects. So instance methods, those are the ones we are sort of your normal object methods. They have a reference to the object passed in, and that's self. Now, that's by convention. You can name it anything, but don't. It's it's self. (laughs) So anytime you're inside of a method inside of that object, you're getting a reference to the parent class, uh, the parent object, excuse me. So class methods are distinct from this. They're marked by a decorator that says at class method, and they don't get self, but they do get a reference to the class. So this, again, by convention, this is usually spelt CLS. Uh, doesn't have to be, but everybody does it that way, so don't go being unique. And class methods are for the case where you don't want an instance of the object, but you do need class information. So the typical use of this is things like a factory constructor. So if I want a method that... So one, one of the places where I use this is, let's say there are two or three objects that have to be constructed together then I might have a class method that constructs them, binds them together, hands them references to each other, whatever they need to do, and then, you know, hands out the parent object kind of thing. And then by contrast, static methods don't have access to self or the class. So they're subtly different from the class method. They don't need the instance object, but they also don't need the class info. And it really is a signal that you're grouping together a family of functions as methods. I don't see these get used as much in Python because the concept of a module can often solve the same problem. So it's sometimes it's a bit of a sign of you're a former Java programmer because they were they're very common inside of Java. Yeah, felt like they were added for that purpose. Yeah. yeah. I, it, so like I, it, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure of this, but I think in it's been a long time. But I think for example, the Java in Java, the math class has a whole bunch of static methods for like cosine, sine, whatever. And Python's answer to all that is those are just functions inside of a module, right? So this is kind of that difference. Yeah. But so so the the concept here was ju- just sort of trying to make sure that you know when to use what and and how to do that. So the article talks about that. 
In addition to talking about reading code, he also talks about reading docs. And that's a sign of an uncommon programmer because nobody reads the docs. (laughs) Uh, So he talks about uh, the fact that uh, having some design principles outlined in the technical documentation can help you understand the coding structure. He gives an example of uh, scikit-learn where they talk about two design principles. One is a consistent object interface and the second is composability. Hmm. So that kind of information helps you understand why, you know, a lot of the transforms in scikit-learn all have very similar methods, right? Because they're following this philosophy. And if you've got that stated somewhere, a particular, you know, and and a diagram that goes with it, it helps someone who's new to the library wrap their heads around how these things work and what you would expect to come out of the objects. So that example you were using before of, you know, mix-ins with the graphs and things like that. Well, if you're, you know, if all the graphical objects have a ability to have an overlay, which has a little box inside of it, and one of those overlays is a legend, then, you know, that composability helps this. So a diagram that talks about that can be useful. Yeah, yeah. So your article touches on a bunch of other stuff as well. I'm just highlighted a few of the key ones. He talks about some uh, use of conf test, when to use dunder init the file rather than the uh, um, constructor. I just said it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and the, the use of absolute versus relative imports, which I do not see eye to eye on him with, but uh, you know, it's always good to see somebody else's take on it. So all in all, some interesting thoughts on some deeper Python coding principles. And, yeah. and I kind of love the fact that this comes from a place of him digging into code that he respects rather than it just being like some random blogger saying, you should do it this way. He's actually, you know, pulling this out of uh, common big Python Python libraries and go, well, hey, scikit-learn does it this way, and this is why. And that's uh, th- there's some there's there's value in that. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Kind of back up your your reasoning for your opinion. Yeah. As opposed to just yeah. being an opinion sitting there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that last little section that you're talking about, I think is going to lead into our our discussion this week too, a little bit. What should be documented and and where and how. Yeah. So that's cool. Yes. All right. Well, my next one is. Ian Curry, one of the Real Python team members, he wrote a really kind of amazing article about, hey, how do you get your Python coding environment set up on Windows? Uh, sort of a setup guide with lots of suggestions, lots of packages and tools, and just kind of like, you know, in his opinion, in a lot of ways, like best practices to kind of get you moving forward. And I learned a lot. Um, I have off and on been a Windows user throughout my life, mostly for business reasons and job reasons and so forth. Some cases I was able to (laughs) install things that I wanted. I currently have a PC. It is mostly uh, sort of a large Steam machine, if you will, (laughs) running uh, video games and things like that when I wanted to. So I decided to go ahead and go through this article and try to set up Windows on it. And I won't go through every single detail because there are a lot, but there are some keynotes of things that we've touched on before uh, across the show. And I wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit and some kind of cool surprises. I think it's a good resource. Definitely. If I know that probably the majority of people that use Python are on windows, um, which is always kind of like a interesting thing to think about. And that could be again, business reasons or others and so forth. So his article starts with, Hey, make sure you're updated, which is uh, always kind of a little bit of a long process if you haven't done it in a while. So he talks about that and you know, getting things updated. He is focusing on Windows 10, though there's a note that most of the steps will 
equally work on Windows 11. I have not, I decided not to do that upgrade yesterday <laughs> and do Windows 11. I went ahead and kept it on Windows 10, but I did get it up to date and made sure everything was all looking nice and clean and ready to go. And so one of the first things that he had you do was there's a new Windows terminal, which is great because before it was just sort of this uh, shell command prompt thing that people were using and uh, it's a little clunky. And this one has been written specifically for Windows and there's a lot of really great development happening at Microsoft right now that is, you know, for developer-centric tools that are not just within like, say, .NET and other things like that. And so the new terminal is nice. I, I thought it was a lot nicer than what I was using before in there. You can get it directly from the Windows Store, so that's a super easy download. As far as configuring your system, he talks a little bit about that, showing hidden files, which is a common thing that a developer is going to need to do. And by default, that stuff's, you know, not only are you hiding files, but you're also usually hiding extensions by default and things like that. And then kind of going a little further, uh, managing software in Windows, he talks a lot about loosening your execution policy. By default, there's a lot of things you can't do without being an ad administrator. And there's actually a fairly quick way to do that on here uh, where you can kind of right-click on, say, the terminal. And then you have an, a, an a, sort of an administration session running and you can say, you know, run this as a system administrator and you can that'll be just sort of temporary. And that led to installing this package manager tool, which those of us who have been on the Mac platform and been developed for a while, you probably have heard of something called Brew or homebrew which is a very popular tool for installing tools and other things that you can kind of use across your system there hasn't been something like that on windows for well when i was getting into it and so the new one i'm not sure if it's age but it's a thing called chocolatey so chocolatey is a package manager you can think of it like again on mac homebrew uh, if you are a Linux user, you might have heard of apt, A-P-T. Um, there's a couple others that have, are mentioned there. I guess Microsoft is working on its own. WinGet uh, is their thing. It's not, I guess, quite there yet. But I've heard this one mentioned before. And actually was pretty easy to set up and was, in my opinion, easier than my experiences with Homebrew, which have always been kind of clunky. I don't know why, but it just always has been clunky for me and very hands-off and hard to kind of get through. And this went really smooth and I was kind of impressed with that. I immediately followed some of the other advice on there and tried out installing a couple of other things, which I installed this uh, Zip Tool 7 Zip just to check out how things were working. That worked fine. It includes, you know, upgrading and uninstalling packages and doing that stuff. And then he suggests this tool, which I thought was actually kind of nice. And anybody who's bought a PC, if it was from a big name brand, it might have been subsidized by having a bunch of crapware <laughs> on your machine. And he suggests a tool that gets rid of it. It's called the Bulk Crap Uninstaller, or BCU. <laughs> and I guess I had done a pretty good job. I have a, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the brand of the computer, but was configured pretty well, but it had like, I don't know, different virus stuff, McAfee and so forth. And I had gone out of my way to like manually uninstall that. And it was a little bit of work. Anybody who's had to do that yourself manually knows. And this thing is actually this, 
the BCU uh, is a nice tool for that. It actually shows everything. If you've gone into the uninstaller in Windows and tried to do it yourself, it's a lot of work very often. And usually waiting for one single thing to be uninstalled, this allows you, in its name, to checkmark a whole bunch of things and say, okay, just remove all of those. And it tells you if there's... Uh, you know, the certificate on the thing, if it's a registered application, if it's from the Windows Store app, so forth. Is there an installer for it? Kind of a nice little tool. So that was a neat find. And there's a nice comment uh, at the end of the article saying this guy was like, hey, I freed up like several gigabytes. Thanks. <laughs> Just with that one little thing alone, um, which I think is going to be a common thing. So the installation of the Windows terminal you probably then also get PowerShell if you didn't already have it. There isn't a simple way to get right to the latest one, which is called PowerShell Core, which is an upgraded version. You have to kind of go through a couple extra steps to do that. So it takes you through that. And PowerShell, I think, is at version 7. And it adds a lot more, I want to say, Unix-y kind of stuff to what you were doing before there, which is nice. So a lot of the common commands that you you would be used to on Linux come across. So you get ls and cd and rm and all the things that you're used to there. One of the problems a lot of people deal with on Windows is working through environment variables, a whole great section on that and getting that ready to go. Then finally getting to setting up your core Python stuff, um, getting Python set up on it. He suggests right away to jump to pyenv. There is a pyenv for Windows project, which is a port. I think PyN is a great tool, depending on what you're trying to do. I am kind of more of a vanilla Python kind of person, and so I went to the Windows Store and downloaded Python, and that actually worked pretty well. It kind of keeps things a little simpler, but PyM adds the ability to have multiple versions installed and to switch between them and set up a virtual environments between them and kind of do some interesting stuff. If you're testing across lots of environments and, and so forth, um, I think that might be a handy tool for that. Again, this was not going to be my primary machine, so I didn't want to go through a bunch of extra stuff. Talks about setting up Git, setting up SSH for your Git account, and then VS Code, and then some other additional stuff. So just a great article. Lots of detail gets you involved in working in Windows for your Python environment. And so hats off, Ian. Good job. Yeah, but there's that little, to me, the most important part buried there in the in the section at the bottom, other nifty Windows software, which is the subsystem for Linux. Yeah, yeah. So that's my usual recommendation. That, you know, if you're solely in a Windows world and never touch anything else, you know, it's your home computer or whatever, then yeah, you may not want to deal with it. But if you are ever going to be writing anything on a server anywhere, it's almost always some sort of POSIX-based whatever. And once you've got that subsystem in, you're inside a you're you're essentially running Linux inside a little box. So as as a consultant, one of the things that sometimes happens is your clients have expectations as to what you run. So and <laughs> yeah. in the days of remote, they they essentially like you sign up, you sign a little form, and then they FedEx you a laptop, and they go, "Here's your laptop," and it's all completely locked down. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And so occasionally, I'm in that space where I have to do that with Windows. And my one ask is always, okay, can I have the subsystem on it? And then, and and back to your comment about things like the admin, because oftentimes your clients won't give you that. Um, but if they if they will allow you to have the subsystem on it, then as long as you're inside of that box, you can control your libraries and install it and everything, because you're you're running inside of that little uh, inside of that little environment. So it's my my go to answer. 
I need to play through that because the article doesn't really get into it. Just kind of offers like some suggestions as that other things you can do. But that has been a common refrain I keep hearing. So I should probably go through those steps and set up on my other machine again. <laughs> it's more of my gaming machine. So. Yeah. Well, I, it, at risk of sounding like an old man, I used to use Sigwin for a lot of that kind of stuff. And it was the same thing. I want a little Unix style shell running inside of Windows. And now that the Linux subsystem's there, you, you don't have to deal with it. And the beauty of it is actually all the file paths are accessible. So you can run your Windows software like VS Code. You don't have to run like an X server. And you just point VS Code at the place where you keep your Python files. And then you can you know run things in the command line or run your Django or whatever. Nice. The same way you would in a Unix. So, Yeah. Well, that kind of gets us into this discussion, which we'll kind of keep short because we're running a little long. Got a lot of details we're getting into this week. But the discussion was an article about technical writing for developers. This is by Eluda. It's on a website called CSS-Tricks. Um, I guess it's maybe a DigitalOcean site. But I, I liked the article in the sense that it covered a lot of the overarching things of like, okay, well, what is technical writing? And is commenting in your code technical writing? Um, how much should be included in that? And that kind of cross-section, if you will, or even that sort of uh, set <laughs> theory kind of thing where they have the two circles of technical writing versus coding and where do they cross over? And it kind of goes a little far into like, you know, what, you know, actual grammar and things like that. But I want to ask you, did, did you, when you were in college, and, you know, I have an experience of college in the late 80s. <laughs> and then I had another experience in the early 2000s. And in the late 80s, I don't remember a technical writing course. And I'm wondering if you had any of that, any school stuff on technical writing. I d don't remember. I don't even think there were options on it. Okay. I, I came up through engineering. They, they essentially they they ran a test in the first entry in September and went, oh, you speak English goodly. Great. You don't have to do this ever again. Nice. So, yeah. They, they, that Not to say that there may not have been courses there, but uh, it wasn't part of yeah. my experience. Yeah, I ended up going and kind of pursuing my degree because I, I, you know, I didn't finish college early. Did that whole rock band thing. Um, <laughs> went off and toured the U.S. for a few years there. And I went back and said, oh, let me take some technical courses and, and so forth. And technical writing was on there. It was an interesting course. I learned a little bit, but it was interesting to kind of look at like structurally how this has been added on to a lot of the curricula today, like talking about like you know, how this is done and, and so forth. And I just find it's an important skill. It's different than, you know, regular writing. There's sort of a precision to it the way that you're communicating everything from reporting bugs to writing an email. Uh, there's all these kind of interesting little intersections of skill and so forth. Well, I think that's one of the, one of the things that was kind of neat in the article is, you know, there's stuff in there that's very much for, hey, you want to be a technical writer or you're writing documentation. And then there's other stuff in there, which is like, oh, hey, yeah. you're a developer, you're going to run into this stuff, right? Right down to the typical thing where you're like, don't put a comment that just says what the code does, right? Explain context, <laughs> explain why, right? Right. And there are uh, there are tricks that you can do with you and your organization that can help with this, right? So 
he talks about the fact that uh, you know you can do templates for both reporting bugs and for doing PRs, and that can make a big difference because now you're filling in a form instead of having to remember, oh, am I covering all of this? And you know, did, did it work? Did it not work? That kind of thing, right? It's like a checklist of sorts, which is good also to yeah. make sure that the context, at least a good chunk of the context, is there as to what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Well. And, and there, there's a there's a, a piece in here that, uh, that he refers to as microcopy, yeah, which is things like error messages, and this is something that I think is very important. Uh, and there's been a trend recently to try and like insert humor, and he's like, you should be very careful with this. I would take that a step further and just say, do not do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Part of it is humor is always context and cultural sensitive. Yeah. Uh, so what you find funny or what you think is clever, someone else may not. And the other side of it for me is, I, even if I get the joke, if you just crashed on me, the last thing I want is your pithy little humor comment. I, you know, I want something structured. Right. Uh, the other aspect of it as well is you got to make sure that you're not, you're specific about it. I was dealing with a library years and years ago. The the client I was dealing with, we were having a lot of trouble with them. There was a it was a very antagonistic sort of relationship, and I was coding something, and up popped this message box that said "Drop dead to," and "to" is a short form people in Toronto use to refer to themselves in the city, and I'm like because we had had this antagonistic relationship with these people, what went through my mind was not... <laughs> wow. Like, it was like, oh, somebody put a string in here they shouldn't have, and this is just, this is worse. Well, it turns out that was timeout. Yeah. And the the the, the hardware had dropped the signal. But, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, it turned kind of funny when we were done with it, but this message went, nothing came to our, any of our heads that this was, oh, you know, the, the, the line wire is, has, has timed out. It was, oh, we have to go back and, right, so what is this? And it, it was, it, this is three words, right? It, yeah. And if you, and they saved nothing, right? Like, if they'd just written out timeout, yeah. none of this would have happened, right? right? Totally. So yeah. you have to be careful with some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like, this is kind of related to what you were talking about, like, here's the when we can deprecate this and so forth, those kind of comments. He had this one yep. simple rule, change your comments the same time you change your code. So yeah, if you if you do rip it out, like let's re-change the comments to, you know, talk about what was changed here and how it was changed and so forth. Yeah, I think it's a good resource generally. Um, I think that, like I said, there's a whole section about grammar and so forth, which is kind of interesting, but the writing code comments and writing pull requests and you know kind of reporting bugs like each one had some nice little pieces of information to help kind of move things forward and then i think also the tail of it the whole extra resources i think are great so that like if you want to continue on this topic and, and actually dig into any of these specific areas there's i don't know like 20 or more <laughs> additional resources at the end of it that are linked out um that can help you you know dive into it with links to like even like Google's technical writing guides and you know other things about just general writing copy and then I like that like you said if you're interested in that idea of microcopy there's like four things talking about that a little bit including Apple's human interface guidelines which has always been kind of an interesting one I don't know if you have anything else to add to it like I I think it's something that we are all technical writers like it or not and we have to develop that skill along with other things that we do uh, to communicate the things that we're, we're doing. And, and so having some, some guidance as opposed to just being a coder all the time, 
the communication <laughs> is often written. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that takes us into projects. Do you want to go first here? Sure. Yep. My project is by a gentleman named Damien, and I'm going to try not to butcher this too badly. Chris Kiewicz. Sorry, Damien. Uh, he was, uh, he's written a neat wrapper to the Python runtime that watches files for changes and dynamically reloads the modules when you save them. So say you've got a program that has a, a, a little infinite loop that just prints the number three to the screen, sleeps for a second, and just does that forever. If you use Reloadium Run instead of Python, you get this magic file watching. So while the loop is running, you can edit your code, change three to five, and then as soon as you save the file, Reloadium sees this and makes the change and dynamically updates the module while it's running. So the three, three, three becomes five, five, five. Then it's got a colorized output, so it tells you what files it's watching. It signals when they've changed, so you know which thing you saved and how it's being updated. And it's even smart enough to handle syntax errors. So if you do something to save the file that makes it invalid Python, it gives you the the actual error code inside of your output and highlights it in red and then tells you, you know, it, that it's found this and reverts it to an earlier file. Nice. So if I edited the five and then, you know, put in whatever, a, an unclosed string, uh, it would flash that up on the screen and keep showing me the five, even though I've broken the code. So that's kind of neat. Reminds me a lot of a feature of the IPython REPL that has a magic word to reload a module. Yeah, Django's got a rudimentary version of this as well in the development server so that uh, it sees that you've changed a file and reboots the restarts the server. So this can be really handy when you're debugging. I only played around with the command line version, but there's also a plugin for PyCharm, and I think he's working on one for VS, uh, VS Code as well. Cool. Documentation says it integrates with Django, Flask, SQL Alchemy, Pandas, and Pygame with special awareness in those cases. So, for example, Django and Flask, it'll do a page reload when you edit a view. And for Django, it's uh, database aware. So it wraps things in a transaction so that if you mucked with an object inside of a view and then you change it, it won't leave the crap inside of your database. It undoes it with the transactions. So that's nice. Yeah. Uh, project appears to be pr pretty active. Um, there have been some bug fixes in just a few days ago. Current version is 0 0.9.1. I never know with semantic versioning but pre 1.0 for me is always a sign that it's early days, but it's worth checking out and playing with. Cool. Mine is really small, <laughs> but it gave me a chance to play with a couple things that I've talked about. Um, one is PipX, which I had a big long conversation with Calvin Hendricks Parker on episode 101 about. Uh, we were talking about adding these additional, sort of like setting up your Python environment again, that whole deal. And this is called PLS a prettier ls basically so if you've used the ls command to basically list out files in the terminal or what have you uh, this is a prettified version of that and it does some really nice stuff it it, it can take advantage of uh, a tool that again calvin was doing some really elaborate stuff and you might have even seen him on talk python where he was showing you know a video of it but uh, of like his terminal he's added all the stuff to kind of prettify it and a lot of that is this thing called nerd fonts. I don't know if you've heard of that, but they're fonts that add all these additional glyphs and so forth so that in the case of this PLS command, it'll get, provide all the icons with folders and um, other information. It can highlight via colors to 
define different types of files. So like it'll share, you know, Python files as different from your directories and so forth. It adds hierarchies and you can then do filtering by not only the types of files, but also you can, I guess, use regex to do comparisons on their names, sorting, details, views, and so forth. But it's a nice, simple project, but I installed it via Pipex so that I could just easily take it out if I wasn't going to use it. And I think I'm going to keep it. I, I like it. It's a project by Dhruv Banushali. And I'll provide links to his documentation page, which is actually really kind of nice, along with the uh, the GitHub for it. How was the performance? Because I find with a lot of these little command line tools that are, because Python's got such a high startup cost. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd be waiting on your LS for a while while it thought about running Python in the background. Was it uh, snappy or? It was really snappy. And um, I really did prefer the output of it. It it, it really was helping me oh, kind of see extra stuff about what's going on, along with like ownership parameters and so forth, um, you know, what's read, write and so forth. Mm-hmm. That was kind of nice uh, addition. Lots of controls, you know, typical command line kind of thing where you can, add lots of flags to to kind of control it in different ways. So, and it can do multiple columns and I don't know. I was impressed with it. Like it's it's something that where I kind of run into this from time to time where LS just by itself isn't kind of providing quite enough information. This might be handier than always switching to like a browser or something like that to be able to see more information. So, right. All right. Well, hey, Christopher, thanks for uh, bringing all these articles and other goodness from PyCoders, and I will uh, see you in a few weeks. Looking forward to it. All right. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.